in his book, Worship Matters. Well-known author and song leader, Bob Coughlin, recounts a personal story regarding diverse experiences people have when visiting different churches. It was a brief series of conversations about corporate worship and the feel that visitors commented upon that stayed on his mind at a specific point in his ministry, uh, one of which many of us can probably relate to from our own experiences in church as well. He writes, when we helped start a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, we often heard the same complaint from visitors. It went like this. There are two kinds of churches in town. The first loves expository preaching, Bible study, and theology. But there's no life. People seem cold and unaffected by the teaching. The second kind is warm and friendly and sings passionately, but there's no truth. Scriptures are often taken out of context, and spontaneity is everything. Obviously, I knew people were exaggerating, but churches can have a hard time connecting the knowledge of the mind with the passions of the heart. Yet, they're integrally related. And both are are crucial for biblical worship. Coughlin goes on to state in this chapter of the book, quote, every time we lead the church in worship, we're doing more than singing songs. We're leading believers in a battle for the truth. You see, the world has been trying to squeeze us into its mold, allure us with its smiles, frighten us with its frowns. Our flesh tells us that following God isn't worth it. He can't be trusted. We're constantly tempted to believe lies. That's why worshiping God with our minds matters. God wants us to wrestle hard with apparent contradictions in Scripture and in life, not simply to ignore them or adopt the world's complacent attitude of, it's all good. He wants us to set our minds, not just our emotions, on things above. Colossians 3, verse 2. Leading worship, therefore, involves more than helping people lose themselves in God or find a safe place. God wants our worship to be intelligent and informed. He wants to stretch our minds to the limits as we consider the greatness of his being and the wonder of his works. Thus, to lead worship in a way that makes God seem dull is a sin. But it's not creativity and production values that will help us. It's helping people clearly apprehend the character and works of God. Friends, I don't know how you would characterize or describe the spiritual temperature of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church? I don't know how you would describe the spiritual temperature of your previous local church or maybe some other local church you have been a member of in years past. But the reality is this. If we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, we need God's help to do so. We need God to teach us how to worship God. 
We need God's help by asking him to shine the light of his truth into the dark crevices of our minds. Uh, Friends, otherwise, if we don't receive that kind of light, we're going to be worshiping a God of our imagination, a God of personal preferences, an American version of God that is not the God of the Bible. And friends, if we are worshiping any imagination or any preference we have of God over the God of Scripture, that is called an idol, and it is condemned. And secondly, we need God by His Spirit to strengthen us in our inner being, so that in our worship, our affections and our allegiance radiate to this one true God of Scripture. So on the one hand, if we want to avoid becoming a cold, frozen, chosen of a church, we must diligently watch over our hearts. We must scrutinize any tendency in our hearts where we might be imitating the Pharisees more than we're imitating Jesus, Jesus, who loved his father with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul, and all his strength. You remember what Jesus said about the outward worship of the Pharisees? Jesus characterized their worship as merely lip service, but it was really dead religion on the inside. Jesus said in Mark 7, verse 6, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Friends, we don't want to be a pharisaical church. We don't want to be a hypocritical church. Yes, we are a church full of sinners, but by God's grace, we are a church full of repenting sinners. We don't want to say things about God with our lips that is not true of what we think about him in our hearts. So instead of falling into the trap that so many churches can, we need to pray prayers often, like the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3. Listen afresh to this beautiful and much-needed prayer for each one of us. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we all were able to ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So to be a Christian whose heart and life is turned to God in praise and adoration, we need to be reminded of God's goodness and kindness to us through Jesus Christ. And to be a local church whose corporate worship and ministry focus is turned to God 
in adoration and praise. We need to listen less to our hearts and preach more truth about God and his goodness to our hearts. Beloved, as Christians, we can all ebb and flow in our devotion to Christ. We can find ourselves busy and active for Jesus on the outside, dotting our church calendar eyes and crossing our church attending T's and yet still be dwindling on the inside in spiritual fervor. So how do we stoke an unquenchable flame for God? How do we strengthen and store up our souls? How do we strengthen and store up other souls of people we love to bless this glorious God who is worthy to be praised? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 288. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, you can take that Bible in the chair with you as a gift from our church to you. Psalm 103. Please follow with me. Of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. 
the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is God's word. Like last week, King David is the author of this psalm. However, unlike last week's sermon from Psalm 86, this psalm isn't a prayer of petition. This is not a prayer of supplication. And unlike Psalm 86 from last week, this psalm doesn't show us any doom and gloom or any impending danger facing David's life. But one thing is for certain. The same God David intensely prayed to last week in Psalm 86 is the same God who he esteems as worthy of praise and adoration in Psalm 103. You see, Psalm 103, in the most general sense of the term, is a praise psalm. And even more specifically, it's a psalm of wonderment. It's a psalm that stares of the greatness of God and the wonder of his works. In fact, several old and modern worship songs have been written in connection with Psalm 103. An older hymn from the 1800s would be Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, written by Henry Light. Uh, We sang a modern version in connection with Psalm 103 earlier in the service, 10,000 Reasons, when written about a decade or so ago. Also, just a little history fact, during the 16th century of the Protestant Reformation, it wouldn't have been uncommon for Psalm 103 to be read or sung at the conclusion of a worship gathering. So it shouldn't surprise us today here in 2022. The content we read here in Psalm 103 is relevant for God's people to sing or read all the time. Uh, To help us see where Psalm 103 is in the Psalter, uh, Psalm 103 is found in Book 4 of the Psalter. Uh, Book 4 stretches from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. And in the last four Psalms of this book in the Psalter, uh, we see the theme here of marveling at the greatness, marveling at the goodness, marveling at the glorious deeds of God. Of God. For example, look quickly with me if you got your Bibles open. Look at Psalm 104. As we look at these last few Psalms, look at Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. I look over to Psalm 105. Psalm 105, verses 1 to 6. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. 
his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. And then look at Psalm 106, the last Psalm in book four. Psalm 106, verse one, praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And then look at the last verse of Psalm 106. Psalm 106, verse 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, amen. Praise the Lord. You can turn back to Psalm 103. If we come to understand, as a result of our time this morning, Psalm 103 correctly, we will then begin to rightly understand why we should worship the Lord. If you're taking notes, here is the main idea of the sermon. Remember God's blessings and respond by blessing and fearing the Lord. Remember God's blessings and respond by blessing and fearing the Lord. If you like a little more bullet points, you can distill that down into two points. Number one, remember God's blessings. Number two, respond to God by blessing and fearing him. So let's look at that first one, remember God's blessings. Remember God's blessings of being saved by his mercy and grace. Before we can evangelize others, before we can disciple others, before we can lead others in corporate worship to God, we must remember our first love. We must remember who God is and what he has done for you, what he has done for me, what God has first done for our own souls. Notice how David begins, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Not my spouse's soul, not my kids' souls, my soul. And all that is within me. Bless his holy name. When David says bless here, this is just another way of extolling and exalting God. It's, it's another way of boasting or celebrating and appreciating our holy and awesome God. Over the last month or so in the state of Arkansas, if you have turned on the television or driven down any main street in the community, we have been bombarded with advertisements, haven't we? We have been bombarded with commercial after commercial. Sign after sign, billboard after billboard of different politicians and judges and other officials running for office. And what you'll see time and time again through these advertisements during voting season is how people who support a candidate, they, they show their support, yes, by voting, yes, for them at the ballot box. Got that. But they also show their approval publicly and verbally in how they promote that candidate. You see, in one way or another, they are, and we are, or you are, are putting your name, your reputation, and your future on the line by endorsing this person as someone others should admire and vote for. Well, here in Psalm 103, 
in a much more reverent and righteous manner, in a much more significant and eternally impactful way, David is promoting God. Now, don't be mistaken. God doesn't need David's vote to be God. He doesn't need our ballots. He doesn't need our two cents. He doesn't need billboards or signposts. He is God. He will always be God, and it's our responsibility to bow and acknowledge it. Friends, he is holy, 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 and he will never cease to be so. Even if every person on the planet became atheist and shut their mouth and no longer sang praises to God, the animals and rocks would cry out, God is holy, holy, holy. But what David is doing here is giving himself here to worshiping God in spirit from the heart and in truth according to who God is. He is ascribing to God his intrinsic value, his intrinsic worth by agreeing with God that God is worthy. You see, all true and biblical worship is is really just that. When we sing praises to God, we're not adding anything to God's value. We're not making him more beautiful than he is. We're simply marveling at who he is. We do that through song. We do that through prayer. We do that through preaching and teaching. And we are doing so agreeing with God that he is who he says he is and that he alone is worthy. And that's what's going on here in Psalm 103. David is bowing in his heart before God and blessing God. You know why many churches are full of people who don't sing praises to God? Well, it's not because they're bad singers. It might be because their hearts are closed to God. You can't put words of worship in someone's mouth if their heart is closed in coldness to this God. It requires God humbling us, revealing our pride and our arrogance, to show us his intrinsic worth. Uh, David shows us here this morning in this text what is evident both in the Old and New Testaments too about all true godliness. Uh, David is exemplifying for us that all genuine faith in God begins at the individual heart level. You see, David had to choose for himself in response to God's mercy if he would serve and trust God with his life. Just like we have to decide with our own lives if we're going to do the same. Friends, just ask yourself that question this morning. In light of God's mercies in Christ, are you presenting your life as a living sacrifice to him? As you are thinking about every Lord's Day, every Bible study, every time you crack open God's word, What God has done for you through Jesus is your response right now. Lord, I present my life to you as a living sacrifice. Or if we were honest, are we dull and indifferent to what God has shown us? 
Friends, it's good to be reminded once again, no one ever gets right with God or go to heaven by riding on the coattails of someone else's faith. Friends, you nor I, nor anyone else in this town of Fort Smith or Barling will go to heaven simply because you are a Baptist or a second, third, or fourth generation Baptist. Listen, being a member in a Baptist church might give you access to a seat at a potluck meal, but being a Baptist is not good enough to give you a seat at the Lord's table in heaven. Friends, in order to have a seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb, you have to be born again. What did Jesus say about the kingdom of God? Jesus said in John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That means simply by being in this building this morning and sitting in on a church service, that does not make you right with God. I think it's loving for us to tell you that. If you're even a member here at CCBC and you've gotten a little too comfortable, a little too cozy, thinking that, well, you're a member here, you're A-OK with God. Friends, just because we're sitting in a church service this morning with God's people does not mean we are right with God. Friends, God will not be mocked. Every single person will give an individual count of their life to him. We must each come to a place resolve whether we will trust this God or whether we will ignore him. Friends, if you want to learn more about what it means to be born again, something that's way more important than being a Baptist, come talk to me after the service. Come talk to the members of this congregation. We will learn to teach you what it means to experience the life transformation that happens when you come to know Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong, David certainly was a proponent of corporate worship, too. It wasn't just an individual exercise for him. We know from First and Second Chronicles, he was really one of the key people that God used to lead the formation of the choirs of Israel. We even notice at the very end of this psalm that David turns from himself, and he starts to exhort others to join on. Come on in. Participate in this blessing to God. Look with me at verses 20 to 22. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his host, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Uh, this reference here to the host, the angels, the ministers, uh, angels are created beings uh, we can't physically see with our eyes. Uh, they are sent out throughout the earth to do God's will and to sing his praises. If the angelic host spend every waking moment singing his praises and doing his will, how much more should we if we've been forgiven by his grace? But notice something else significant here that David is doing. Before he instructs others on the importance of praising God, did you notice how he is preaching his own mini-sermon to himself? Before David would prepare a feast in the kitchen to strengthen the souls of God's people, he first pulls out a little Ziploc bag 
to feed his own soul. What mini-sermon? What Ziploc nourishment? Zip-bag nourishment that David pull out for his own heart? Look at verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Friends, David is preaching. He is teaching. He is imploring. Not other people. But he is preaching to himself. David's shepherding his own heart. He's watching over his own heart. And he does so by telling himself to do something. Literally, David is talking to himself. Now, side note, if anyone in here does talk to themselves when no one else is in the house, and someone has walked in on catching you doing that, and they call you a weirdo, this is your one proof text among some that it's okay to talk to yourself. All right, back to the sermon. David is certainly talking to himself, but he's not being a weirdo. He's not talking about meaningless or frivolous matters. He's not talking about his grocery list for that day or whether he thinks the Israelite bulldogs will win the Jewish soccer game later that day. He's not talking to himself because he's bored or because no one wanted to talk to him because he had no friends. No, David gets his own attention to focus in on a fact he already knew but needed a constant reminder thereof. Like all of us who can slip into this funk and fog from week to week without knowing it, David realized he too can become very forgetful of how good God had been to him. So what does David do? He talks to himself. He preaches to himself. He listens less to his own heart and preaches what is true about God to his heart. And he does this because he does not want to forget the benefits of the Lord. When David says, forget not all his benefits, that word benefit simply refers to all the gracious ways that God had blessed David. And really all of us who fear the Lord like David too, by meeting our greatest needs. By preaching to himself, to remember and not forget who God is and what God has done for him, David here is being wise. He is being wise by not falling prey to the common cliche and counsel so many people give one another. This wasn't self-talk. This wasn't believe in yourself. He was telling his soul to remember God and remember his benefits. Uh, Here we are at the end of another school year for thousands and thousands of high school students around the country. And I would imagine that if you Googled right now high school graduation speeches somewhere along the way on YouTube or other places, you'll hear things like this. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Beloved, if you're a follower of Jesus, be very careful of taking that advice. If we trace out the logic of that advice, it will eventually lead to a very self-centered and godless destination. Because the reality is this, our hearts often forget God way quicker than we forget ourselves. 
our hearts often forget God way quicker than we forget ourselves. Beloved, we need to spend less time finding ourselves or going on some endless quest of self-discovery in our teenage years or in our midlife Chrysler years or trying to figure out how to live with regrets in our retirement years and spend more time knowing God. More time telling our souls to bless the Lord and to remember all the ways he has been good to us. Friends, how have you been doing in that exercise lately? Do you listen more to your feelings more than you do preaching God's truth to your heart? Friends, if this is something you're struggling at, but you recognize, I want to become wise, like we see with David, uh, commit yourself to memorize Scripture. Scripture is God's Word penetrating our minds so that we hear the voice of God and not the voice of someone else. Uh, commit to studying 1 Peter and Ephesians that we've read already this morning. Uh, or if you're a visual person and the people you live with are okay with it, Maybe get scripture on chalkboards or whiteboards or get a little more old school, sticky notes. Have them everywhere, Bible verses of God's promises and his benefits to us. That way, every day when you wake up and you are like me and tend to forget, you're staring at the promises of God every day. Beloved, God is worthy to be praised because God has treated us better than our sins deserve. God is worthy to be praised because God has treated us better than our sins deserve. And that's what David's alluding to here when he says his benefits there in verse 2. And we know that because of what he says next, how he expounds on these benefits in this little mini-sermon he gives himself. Look with me starting in verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Did you catch those words? If you're one of those that like to underline or circle in your Bible, this is one of those times to do that. Did you listen to those verbs? God being the one pursuing us in this way? God forgives, God heals, God redeems, God crowns, God satisfies, God renews. Uh, these are the spiritual blessings that are showered down from heaven on the spiritual status of God's people. These are the flood rains that overwhelm the dry deserts of our souls. These are the rich mercies that spill over into our bankrupt spiritual bank account when it comes to our standing before God. These are the promises sent to us to our mailbox from heaven's throne room. These are expressions of the heart of God to meet our greatest needs. Needs that will equip us to stay focused on him and to help us stay satisfied in him. If you read verse 3 this past week, 
I know there's a group of guys who look at the sermon text ahead of time on Friday mornings, and you've been looking at verse 3 and how David says you heal our diseases. You might be asking, if I put my faith in God, does that promise God will heal all my diseases or sicknesses in this life? Here's a brief theology on sickness and how it relates to faith according to the Bible. I want you to look down in verse 14 for a minute. Psalm 103, verses 14 to 16. I want you to see what David thinks about human existence. Okay? It's going to help you study exegetically how to understand what David's meaning here. Psalm 103, look at verse 14. For he, God, knows our frame. In other words, how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. Where does he get that language from? Genesis 3.19. You came from the dust, Adam, and to dust you shall return. Verse 15. As for man, now speaking of all mankind, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. David is recognizing what every human will eventually recognize. You will not always be young. You will not always be healthy. You will not always have a life free of doctor's visits and reminders to take your medicine. But those physical and painful reminders is that this body is going back to the dust, but your soul is going in one of two places, with God in glory or in punishment in hell. Let the aging and aching of our bodies wake us up to the reality of heaven before us and hell that awaits many. Friends, we also know here that physical sickness then and bodily decay is going to ultimately be our final sentence for all of us in one way or another. Death is the final result from that original sin in the garden. Genesis chapter 3. Romans chapter 8, or Romans 5, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Friends, even as Christians, we know that the best is still yet to come, but our outward man is wasting away, but our inward man is being renewed day by day. Under the old covenant, too, remember David not speaking as a new covenant believer as we are today. Under the Old Covenant, Israel had blessings and curses caked into the covenant they had had with God. Under the curses, if Israel disobeyed and rebelled and went after other gods, they would receive punishments that consisted of specific judgments. Judgments like famine, droughts, pestilence, barrenness of the womb, defeat by enemies in war, and the loss of their land. And one of those judgments would also pertain to sicknesses and disease on occasion. We read in Deuteronomy 28, verse 22, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever. Or again in Deuteronomy 28, 27, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. But here in Psalm 103, what is most likely in view here When David brings up God healing our diseases, he's speaking of diseases in a spiritual or moral way. 
That's why this psalm is filled with that common trilogy in the Old Testament, that trilogy of our sin. The three most common words for our sin, you see that there in verse 3, A, iniquity. Or again, verse 10B, iniquities. Verse 10A, sins, and verse 12B, transgressions. These words are all synonymous explaining and expounding the different aspects of our rebellion to God. We even see there in verse 4 uh, a reference that's common in the Psalms to the pit. Uh, this can even be translated to the place of destruction or even the grave. Uh, it's even synonymous with the Hebrew word sheol, the abode of the dead. So really what David's talking about here when he's talking about diseases He's speaking about our sin. He's speaking about our transgressions. He's speaking about our iniquity. He's speaking about what Paul speaks about in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. So here in Psalm 103, what is David doing? He's talking about really hard things and really wonderful things. He's doing two things simultaneously in this psalm that involve blessing the Lord. In a beautiful tapestry, by looking at man's sin, by looking at man's finite and temporal existence, we're like the flower that fades. And by even recognizing, we tend to forget his benefits. David simultaneously shows us that God is amazingly merciful. He is infinitely merciful to sinners like us. Here in Psalm 103, we hear David praise God for his mercy over his sin. But then he begins to read about God's mercy towards Israel's sin and their deliverance in ages past. Friends, that's what God often does to strengthen the faith of his people. He calls us to remember Remember that my faithfulness is great and my mercies are new every morning. And David here reminds himself and he reminds his readers that God forgives, God heals, God redeems, God crowns, God satisfies, and God renews. And David shows this now from going about himself in verses 1 to 5 to now showing us about God's benefits to Israel in the Exodus when he delivered a people that were in bondage and make them his beloved children, make them his beloved bride, make them his own special possession. Look at verses 6 to 12 with me. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In verse 6, we get to see another beautiful light shine from the diamond of God's character. We see in verse 6 that God is also righteous and just. The Lord works righteousness and justice 
for all who are oppressed. We know in context this is in specific reference to the people of Israel. Verse 7 refers to God disclosing himself through divine revelation and other special ways to Moses. And then to Moses, through Moses, to the nation of Israel. You see, the Lord had appeared to Moses in a burning bush, that supernatural phenomenon in Exodus chapter 3. And he would call Moses to be the leader to take them out of Egypt, to lead them to freedom, freedom to serve and worship and bless this God, this God who would lead them to a promised land. We know God would later then reveal to Moses his law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, along with the instructions of the tabernacle, that mobile place of worship, which had the ceremonial law attached to it. But why? Have you ever just stopped and read the Old Testament and go, why? Why did God Almighty the everlasting God, the great I am, the Lord of hosts, Adonai, Yahweh. Why did he care for these people? Was there something in them that he found lovable? Was there something in them that made him think, ha, I'm pretty low on self-esteem in heaven right now. Having them on my team would make me happier. Friends, we're we're told the reason in Scripture why God chose to save them. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Friends, he's simply put, he loved them because he chose to love them. Friends, if you call yourself a Christian today and you say, I love the Lord, have you ever asked the question, why? What made you love the Lord? What caused you to love the Lord? Why aren't you like your atheist friends who don't? Friends, we love the Lord because he first loved us. And friends, he chose Israel And he chose a people before the foundation of the earth, his church, because he chose to, out of his own mercy, to the praise of his glory. Uh, Friends, they were in harsh slavery. They were in unjust bondage. Uh, Listen to even Exodus 2, 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Did you hear that? God heard their groaning. 
God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Friends, God cares about all suffering. If you are suffering this morning unjustly by someone in authority over you or someone who lives with you or you've been taken advantage of by someone else's lies and deceits, or you've been attacked in a court hearing and you're not getting a fair shake by a lawyer or an earthly judge, take heart, dear brother. Take heart, dear sister. There is coming a day that the one true and sovereign lawgiver, there is a judge who sees all and knows all and no person will escape his judgment. If you are suffering as a Christian, and your obedience for the glory of Christ, you, my friend, are blessed. The Apostle Peter encourages believers in his day who were suffering unjustly for following Christ. Listen to 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Physical suffering, emotional suffering, financial suffering, suffering in marriage, suffering in the home, all these types of suffering are seen, heard, and known by this God. And this God sees, he hears, he knows, and he cares. But eternal suffering, because of our sins before this holy judge, is a much worse kind of suffering than any other suffering we could face in this life. That's why of all things, Israel needed saving not just out of Egypt from slavery, They needed saving. They needed salvation from their sins before a holy God. And friends, that's the same truth for us today. Did you know that God knows every sinful, shameful, regretful, evil, perverted, adulterous, dirty, duplicitous, Racist, prejudice, hypocritical, hateful, and ungodly thing you and I have ever done. That means every word you have ever spoken, every website you have visited, every Instagram post, every magazine you've read, every text message, every email, every blog post you have ever sent, every secret deed no one knows about, every secret life you've been hiding from others, he sees, he knows, and all those sins will be punished by the justice and righteousness of God. God will not be mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. Friends, Psalm 711. Meditate on this this week as I have. Psalm 711. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. 
But did you know that at the same time, this same God is able and willing to forgive you of all of it? Not only forgive you, but completely pardon you of ever having to pay him back a debt you cannot pay anyway. And not only pardon you, but never hold it against you or bring it back up to accuse you ever again. That's sins of the past. That's sins yesterday. That's sins this morning. That's sins this afternoon. That's sins tomorrow. That's sins in the future. That's sins until the day you meet your maker. Friends, how can that happen? How can a God who is just and holy and righteous forgive sinners, remove their transgressions without him becoming unjust? This is the mystery. This is the riddle of the Old Testament. It's even found in that famous Exodus passage where Moses is given the Ten Commandments for a second time. Do you remember how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, now we know where David got that. Psalm 103, verse 8. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Same words David used in Psalm 103. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Friends, this seemingly contradicting riddle of the Old Testament of God being merciful on the one hand and just on the other would never be finally resolved until the day God condescended and became a man. Jesus Christ, God's Son, took on human flesh full of grace and truth. He perfectly obeyed God. He always blessed God and never forgot the love that he experienced and shared with his Father throughout all eternity. And Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross, being crushed for our iniquities under the wrath and righteous indignation of God. And three days later, God raised him from the dead, proving that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the only Savior of the world. Friends, yes, Jesus did come and heal the sick and raise the dead, but at the cross, his death showed our dark and fallen world that our deepest stains are the disease of our sins. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Peter brings this back up in his first epistle in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you have been healed. Friends, do you understand that spiritual healing is eternally more important than any physical healing we could have in this life? Do you understand that? 
spiritual healing of the disease of our sins, transgressions and iniquities against this righteous God is infinitely more important than a good doctor's report. That is infinitely more important than a really long life. As Jim Elliott has said, and I probably say it once every 20 sermons, 20 sermons, he prayed, Lord, give me not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Friends, when you understand that our greatest need is to be spiritually healed, any temporal suffering we face in this life will be light and momentary compared to the mercy we experience forever. Thomas Watson once said, to have health is a mercy. To have Christ and salvation is a greater mercy. It is like the diamond in the ring, which casts a more sparkling luster. Friends, these soul-satisfying promises in Psalm 103 are not just for David. They're not just for the faithful remnant of Israel. They're for us, too, who are putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, what are those promises again? Well, as one theologian said, no one puts away sin better than God does. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Here David, using this geographical imagery of really high and really wide, is basically just saying this. God's boundless and everlasting love for you will never end. Beloved, if you're trusting in Christ... He chose you before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless before him. If he has loved you in eternity past, you should not be afraid if he will love you tomorrow or for the rest of your days. If you are trusting in Christ, know that it's because he first loved you and caused you to be born again to this living hope with an inheritance that is undefiled and waiting for us. Friends, if he has reserved a perfect inheritance waiting in heaven for you, then any gifts you don't enjoy in this life means that the best is still yet to come. Any gifts you want God to give you in this life, if they don't come, you still know that the best is still yet to come. Friends, Even like a father who is tender towards his kids, our Heavenly Father knows our weaknesses, our fears, our infirmities. Friends, he knows the day we were born. He knows the day he made us born again. And he knows the day we're going to die. And our life is in his hands. Look at verses 13 to 18. As a father shows compassion to his children... So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. And his place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Earlier in the sermon, I stated the main point. So if you've already forgotten, I'm going to bring it to remembrance. Remember God's blessings and respond by blessing 
and fearing the Lord. We focus the bulk of this sermon, and I think rightly so, on remembering God's blessings and the call to bless him, to praise him. What about this fearing of the Lord? You'll notice in this psalm how these saving mercies are bestowed on a particular people, a people that are in covenant with God. And he describes those people as people who fear him. You'll notice that description in verse 11, verse 13, and verse 17. And then in verse 18, he basically explains what it means to fear God. Those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Friends, we know in Scripture that Jesus, before he would be betrayed in Luke 22, said that the new covenant, the new covenant would be sealed by the shedding of his blood. Friends, that means that all the promises of the new covenant are found in all of us who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus, in that sense, is our covenant mediator. He is our savior, and he is our covenant keeper on our behalf. Because of the new birth, God now puts his fear in us that we might love him, that we might serve him, that we might bless him in our lives. Well, how do we respond then to God's immeasurable blessings in our lives? We bless him, we praise him, but we also fear him and obey him. This kind and compassionate father we read about here in Psalm 103, who cares for us, is also the sovereign king reigning on the throne over us. Look at verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Members of CCBC, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, having been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That means every part of your life, all of your being, like David said, All of my being, every detail of our lives are to be yielded under his authority and to be aimed at his glory. What does that involve? This includes our jobs, our finances, our homes, our hospitality, our years in grade school, our years in retirement, our usage of technology, the stewardship of our talents, our marriages, our parenting, our singleness, our dating, our friendships, our involvement in discipling others, our commitment to the local church, our evangelism, our corporate worship, our politics, our sharing of our salvation testimonies, our response to persecution and sin from others, even our waiting on God to bring forth justice in his timing. Beloved, every detail of our lives, David says all of creation is to be yielded to fearing and obeying the Lord. Friends, Jesus is far superior than the angels. Jesus is head of the church. Jesus is Lord of our lives. Jesus is our advocate before the Father. Jesus is our compassionate friend. Jesus is our very life. 
Friends, when we're tempted to disobey this Jesus, remember his lordship involves your whole life. When you're tempted to live only for yourself, remember God's benefits in Christ that have been showered over your life. Samuel Ward, a Puritan minister of the first half of the 17th century, reminds us of how we can be reminded each day of God's benefits to us in Christ. He writes, Each day, we take the red lines of Christ's cross over the black lines of God's debt book. And if God looks upon the handwriting against us, he sees the bill canceled with the precious blood of his son. Such blood is all sufficient to cover, nullify, abolish, and wholly take away our sins in such a way that he neither sees, will see, nor can see them as sins and debts against us. Friends, do you like joy in the Lord this morning? Then think less about how much you've done or haven't done for God and think a whole lot more about what God has done for you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless you for being merciful to us and treating us better than our sins deserve. Lord, we pray that we as the members of this congregation would help one another, remind one another of all the ways you have blessed us in Christ. Lord, we also pray for anyone here among us that maybe if they were honest, have been riding on the coattails of someone else's faith. Lord, we pray that today they would consider what Christ has done for sinners like them, that they would be born again to this living hope. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.